Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hello, my name is Corey Tompkins, and I'll be reading the word. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord, amen. Well, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. Uh, We are continuing on in this series that we have called Kingdom Manifesto. Our vision for the year overall that we feel like the Lord gave us through the fall is all our allegiance to King Jesus. And as we normally do at the beginning of the year, we like to hone in on one of the gospels, the Jesus story, to kind of give us our bearings before we explore whatever the Lord has beyond that. And so this year, I felt very strongly that rather than going through an entire gospel and getting a sweep of 
Jesus' life culminating in his death and his resurrection, we would look at the Sermon on the Mount as kind of this manifesto for kingdom living that we believe that as we, by faith, walk out kingdom living, we know something about the heart of the king. So kind of the main thesis for this whole season, taking us right up until Easter, is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for what it looks like when God is king. So God rescues us into this family called the church, and the church is this ragtag group of people who are seeking out the kingdom together. The church and the kingdom are not the same thing, which is why some of you kind of frustrate each other and you don't really like each other, because that's what being the church is. But together we commit that we're seeking out the kingdom And really what that means is that we have been saved into this new way of being, this new citizenship that we have in the kingdom of God, and we are demonstrating for the rest of the world, this is what it looks like when God is king. This is what it looks like when God is in charge. And so the the commands that Jesus gives us here, and I think this is just a really good understanding of scripture in general, it's not about just changing your behavior and being a good little Christian boy or being a good little Christian girl and behaving yourself until you get to go to heaven. It's really about living out a way of allegiance to Jesus where when we do it and we don't always understand what Jesus is asking, it's through the action that we have these deeper revelations of what he's really like. So through this whole series, um, we're going to read the entire Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end. That's why we're going to verse 20. Um, Even though we might not necessarily preach on each of those on every single verse, okay? So the work for you to do is to fill in the gaps, to during the week as you are pouring over the Sermon on the Mount piece by piece um, to to work through the the parts of the scriptures that we may not necessarily be getting to. But the biggest questions that we want to answer in this time are, what is the deeper truth that Jesus is calling me to embrace? Because he rarely, whatever Jesus says, it's rarely the surface reading of that thing is is what he wants. And you're going to find that a lot through the Sermon on the Mount. There'll be something that actually confuses you or doesn't seem like it's right because he's inviting you to this deeper way of thinking. And then secondly, what does this command, what does this way of living teach us about the heart of the king? That the more we practice kingdom living, the more we trust that he is, in fact, good. So I'm going to pray uh, and we'll get into what I feel like the Lord has for us today. So Heavenly Father, um, we, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are in our midst. The kingdom of heaven is right here in us, among us, and revealed through us. And Lord, some of us are coming in to this day maybe really not feeling that, feeling like we're, we're outside the gates of the kingdom whether because we're weighed down by our own senses of guilt or shame. Um, Maybe we have so much anxiety about the future, we feel like that removes us from your presence and your kingdom, but still we are here because you have claimed us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, gather up all of our our emotions and, and bring those things into the kingdom as well. That it is information for us to read, but it's not the truth. The truth is that we are here and we're in your kingdom now and that's where you want to start doing the work. So God, I pray that you would be opening up our ears to hear you speak today because I think there's so much here that each one of us, you want to speak to each one of us a very particular message that meets our stories, um, that you would open up our hearts to receive that truth, to allow it to sink down deep into the core of who we are so the transformation begins to happen there and it naturally starts to radiate out into how we think, how we act, and how we feel. 
And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So how would you start your debut sermon? This is, this is you, you're coming up, you're, you're trying to make an impression. If you went to seminary, like I didn't, um, you take classes on how to preach. I've actually learned more from listening to comedy podcasts than I have from any kind of teachings on that, but I think I do okay. Um, and there's, there's things that you learn as a, as a sermon, like start with a joke, you know, a really good churchy joke maybe is a, is a way to kind of warm up the crowd. Um, you know, create your, your major thesis up front, and then you've got three supporting points. And like I said last week, they all begin with the letter P, so they're memorable. And there's like, you know, kind of a takeaway. All these, there's a lot of different ways that you frame a sermon. I think Jesus would have failed seminary based on this sermon because he doesn't do any of that stuff. Like, Jesus isn't a good preacher, by our standards, because we've kind of turned it into a formula, and it's an art form, and I do appreciate a lot of that, but I think sometimes it makes it actually really hard for us to listen to Jesus, and I think this is probably actually the biggest thing. We think that when someone is preaching, they're supposed to make the complicated simple and the, and the mysterious clear. That's what we think, and that's why we're so often disappointed with Jesus, because he doesn't do that. So often, Jesus is speaking to us in a way that it actually confounds us and confuses us even more, right? How many of you have been confused by Jesus? And you read it and you're like, what the heck are you talking about? And Jesus, we see this time and again, the way he's engaging with his disciples or the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law or, um, you know, officials and kind of the political or religious elite, that he's always saying things like, go and figure out what this means. And like, wait, no, it's not, my, it's not my job to figure this out. You're supposed to tell me what it says. He says, no, 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 go figure out what this means and come back to me. And we're going to work it out. And I think that's what we see here. Jesus is making a really profound statement at the beginning of his first major sermon, this manifesto that changes our assumptions of how the whole thing is supposed to work. And I think this is what's so profound about the way that Jesus chooses to start this sermon. Uh, God blesses all the wrong people in our eyes. This is how he starts. Jesus starts with a list of people, and he says, these are the kinds of people that are blessed by God. And it feels counterintuitive because in, in the first century, in Jesus' day, just like today, um, we have assumptions of what it means to be hashtag blessed. We assume if you're healthy, you've been blessed. We assume if you're wealthy, you've been blessed. Do you realize in our culture, we equate morality and wealth, okay? And what do I mean by that? If someone is really wealthy, they've done something to deserve it, and they are more moral than we are. And by contrast, then, poor people are immoral, they deserve to be poor because they don't try hard enough or they don't... Did you realize that the, the phrase to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that was actually someone being facetious? And then our culture said, yeah, no, that's right. And now we actually say that to poor people. We go, you just pull yourself up. Have you ever tried to do that? It doesn't work. But it's built into our assumptions of like who is blessed. They're healthy, they're wealthy, they're talented, they're handsome, they're beautiful, um, they've, they're, you know, they're strong. These are the kinds of people that God blesses. And then by default, what gets left unsaid is, well, if you're poor or you're ugly or you don't have a lot of talents or you're not very smart, you must be in some way cursed. 
And we see this all throughout the story of Jesus when he's engaging with people. There's a story even where they come across a man who was born blind and his disciples go, oh, so did he sin or did his parents sin? Because that's how they thought the world worked. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's, that's not what's happening. This was happened so that the son, of, the son of glory can be revealed. And Jesus subverts these assumptions of who we think is blessed who we think has God's favor, and he turns it all upside down. And so that's what we see right at the beginning is already Jesus is laying the foundation for this subversive, upside-down kingdom that breaks through our conventional wisdom so that we can have the prophetic imagination to believe that there is a better way. And this list is about the kinds of people who God is making a covenant with. Just like we saw last week talking about the the law, the Torah, the the Old Testament, was God making a covenant with people who could not live up their expectations on their side. Now God is making another covenant here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to be going, I'm going to go through each of these Beatitudes and just kind of share what, the, what is the angle, what makes these kinds of people blessed. And here's what happens. So often when we read scripture, we want to read ourselves into the story of the good guys, Right? We want to believe that we're the ones that already have the favor. I don't want you to do that. As I'm going through the Beatitudes, I want you to be thinking about people that you know. Who do you know in your life that, that looks like this? And do you look on them as blessed? Or do you have pity on them? And so the way it breaks down is there's, uh, there's four people who are types of people who are blessed because they're missing something, they're lacking something, and then there are four kinds of people who are blessed because they possess something. And so that's how we're going uh, to look at each of these. And in the back of your mind, I want you to, re- to remember what we looked at last week with Jesus being tempted in the desert by Satan as a recapitulation, um, him retelling the story of Israel in the desert where they're challenged with three things. And here's your three-letter P things so that I can pass seminary if I ever go. Um, Does God protect? Does God provide? And does God empower us? These are the three questions that where Israel failed, Jesus fulfills them, but we also begin to see this new pattern in the kinds of people that God blesses. So first, the four people who are lacking something. Number one, the poor in spirit humbly know their limits and need for God. The poor in spirit. Now, this isn't necessarily an economic designation. It's too simple where we say poor people, like monetarily poor people are blessed and monetarily rich people are cursed. That, the, the kingdom is a little bit more profound than that. But what we do know from Jesus is, gosh, it's really, really hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. And he says this because we have this illusion. And when I say rich, by the way, I'm talking about all y'all. Okay. We're not talking about like Windermere and Winter Park. We're talking about all, we're we're like the richest people in the world, okay, by far. That's who we're talking about. When we uh, have, we have this illusion that we we have earned everything that we've got and we're self-sufficient, right? That's that's the dream. That's the dream of our society. I have to become self-sufficient. I have to get to the point where I don't need anybody because I'm strong enough, because I'm capable enough. I have the right skill set. I'm going to utilize all these assets that I have in order to provide for me and my own and to protect myself from this big, scary world. And we have this illusion of control and power. We are what you could say maybe rich in spirit in that way. And Jesus begins by saying the poor in spirit are humbly blessed. 
is these are the kind of people that are all too aware of the limits that they have. And not only about knowing your limits, but that your limits are actually a gift because then you come to God knowing your need for him. I would remember this story that I heard years ago about a priest that was called into a prison uh, to attend to this guy. He was a mafia boss. Um, he'd been in, you know, put in prison for the rest of his life for all kinds of heinous crimes, you know, drug rings and murders and all of this. And uh, he had developed uh, a cancer of the esophagus. And so this priest was coming in weekly to minister to him. And as they started working together, eventually, um, they started to build a little bit of a rapport and a relationship. And this really uh, hard man, he came to find out, had a story that so many people in that situation have, that when he was a little child, he was abused. He was abused verbally, he was abused sexually, physically, and so like adults are this horror that I'm supposed to push away and I'm rejecting because they're not safe. And so he grew up building this illusion of power in order to protect his wounded inner child, and that's what had led him eventually into the mafia and then climbing through the ranks, that if I can be big enough and strong enough and in control enough, then I can actually protect myself from the scariness of the world. But what this priest recognized over time is because of his cancer, he was becoming weaker and weaker. He he was being confronted with his own limitations in life, that he could not do the things that he thought he was able to do. And the weaker and weaker he became, the more and more he opened up his life, the more they began to relate on this deep and profound level. And the priest said, he became one of my best friends. You see, we think weakness is a horror that we have to be strong. But when we're strong, we, we have this illusion that keeps us impervious to being connected, to trusting God, to trusting other people. And I think God has designed it that we grow up with this illusion of strength, but then our strength begins to fail us in our, the last season of life and we become weaker and weaker in order to learn what it means to be poor in spirit. It's very good. It's good news. The second who are the second people who are lacking? Those who mourn know that this isn't the way that things are supposed to be. It's crazy that we would say someone who mourns is blessed. But we've talked about this a lot in our community, especially over the past year, that so often because of the status quo way the world works, we have become numb as a coping mechanism to deal with how things are. And I think especially through this season of an abnormally uh, long amount of stress because of the pandemic, because of everything happening in the national and the international news, we have to numb ourselves just to kind of get through the day. But we've talked about this pattern in the Old Testament when the prophets came along to, to minister to a numb Israel who had just accepted that this is just the way things are. They actually taught Israel how to mourn, how to grieve. We see this in Lamentations. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it through all these other prophets. They're teaching them how to feel something because you cannot truly hope until you learn how to grieve. You see, grieving and mourning is the gateway to begin to hope again. And so those in this world who weep, who mourn, who feel the pain, and there's kind of almost a sense of anger in that mourning of going, this is not the way things are supposed to be, opens us up to receive that prophetic imagination to believe that there is a better way, that there is a new way. And we begin to leave behind these empirical notions of how the world is supposed to be, and we lay claim to these new kingdom realities because we've been opened up to mourn. 
Number three, the meek. We don't use the word meek very often. And oftentimes we think of meek and weak being the same thing. And that's not necessarily true. But it's very much like the poor in spirit that the meek trust that God will make up his promises to lift up the lowly. There's this language that's used in the Old Testament, again, through these prophets, where they talk about when God brings justice to the world, the mountains will be lowered and the valleys will be raised up. And he's not just talking about, like, doing some terraforming, okay? It's a metaphor. It's something else, you know? Like, that's how God speaks. And Israel had to hold on to that truth because there were a heck of a lot of mountains in the first century. There was a lot of people in positions of power and privilege who sought to keep people suppressed, to diminish their value, to keep control over them. And the promise that God brings through the prophets is, no, 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 he's going to humble the mountains and he's going to raise up the valleys, but God is going to do this because sometimes we think it's our job to lower the mountains and to raise the valleys. And what happens when we try to fix the world? We tend to use violence against violence. But the people who are meek, kind of like the people who are poor in spirit, know we have to trust God and follow his leading to see that happen, to see the lowly lifted up into their proper place in the kingdom. And then the, the fourth and final of those who are lacking, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, envision a better world under God's rule. I remember several years ago, our friend Janae talking about this idea of hunger, that hunger is actually a really good thing, and thirst is a really good thing. These are there's systems in your body that are, that are there to tell you what you need. So, you know, Kristen's talking about being pregnant. I know, like, with pregnant women, there's, like, these weird cravings, like ice cream and pickles, I think, is, like, always the classic thing. And what's happening is your, your body's actually saying, like, I need iron. So when you have a certain kind of craving, your body's literally telling you, I need these vitamins or I need these minerals or whatever it might be. And hunger and thirst are actually really good things because those are those, they're systems that God has created within us. And there's, there's a, there comes a moment when we are so hungry that we actually lose our sense of hunger. We shut down those psychological systems to accept um, our emptiness. And that's when someone is emaciated. When you're emaciated, you actually stop hungering. You stop thirsting because you're just trying, your body is trying to survive. And so what God, what Jesus is saying here is the people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that's a good thing. There's something in their system that's like you're on the right track. But you see, in our modern society, we're so full, we're so content, because we have, again, we have this illusion that we're providing for ourselves, that we're protecting ourselves, that we empower ourselves, and we, we engorge ourselves, we stuff ourselves. Maybe it's literal food for comfort or, or drink, or, but it could be activities, it could be um, relationships. We just stuff ourselves to the gills so that we don't have to feel hungry. And it makes us content and we settle down and we accept the way the world is today because it kind of works for us. But what does it look like to actually cultivate a sense of hunger and thirst for righteousness? What is righteousness? The word righteousness means covenant membership in God's family. What does it mean to be so hungry for God and to live in his reality that you won't settle, you won't take second best? 
That you, again, you in, are able to envision a better world under God's rule when Jesus is king. This is what it looks like to live in his kingdom. So those are the four Beatitudes that are about how blessed people are when they lack something because then there's a place for God to fill it. The next four um, are people who possess qualities of the heart of the king. They possess something that truly matters in this life. And so the first are the merciful. The merciful understand God's priorities. There's this line in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, God is speaking through Hosea, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it's one that Jesus comes back to time and again. And he's always challenging the religious elite of his day with that verse. Because they thought it was all about sacrifice, which is, it's all about following the rules and doing things in the right way and doing the rain dance so that we can get the things from God that we're supposed to get. Because we don't really trust that God is actually with us and for us. And so if we live and we're really good little boys and girls, maybe he'll show up and, and give us what we want. And there's a point at which Jesus is kind of calling out these woes over the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, um, he says you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a, cam- a camel. And, you know, in the, in the Middle East, there's a lot of flies and you have these little things like it's to eat. And you know, accidentally eat a gnat or a bug or whatever. You know, you eat like eight spiders in your entire life while you're sleeping. Did you know that? Yeah, you got that one for free. Just little factoids. Um, but you would, you would put this little screen over your drink so that you wouldn't get a, a gnat in there accidentally so you don't, like, disobey the Torah. And so he's saying is, like, you, you get into these little itty-bitty, like, interpretations of the law. You're trying to get to the finest little scope, but you swallow a camel. You're missing the point. And he says it's mercy. He says it's justice. He says, peace, you're so caught up in these tiny little particulars of trying to behave yourself in front of God that you miss, this is a huge exercise in missing the point. And I think the people who are merciful in this world understand what God's priorities actually are. It's not about all these like itty bitty, like trying to sift, what do I do in this thing and that thing? And I'm reading my Bible in the appropriate amount of times. And so often we, we, we enter into that kind of legalistic mindset when it comes to trying to behave ourselves. But we miss the, the whole point that it's not about behaving yourself. It's about being someone who naturally radiates the reality of the heart of the king. And that brings us to our second one, that the poor or the pure in heart are unclouded by evil corruption. We've talked about how the, one of the, the major narratives of the Gospels is the, the kind of the, the kingdom of the Holy Trinity clashing against the empire of the unholy Trinity, the flesh, the enemy, and the world. And what we would say maybe there is like, you know, our ego, where we're the center of our story, a Satan as the accuser. Um, and then the world being the, the powers and the principalities, the structures of the world that keep the status quo as it is. And we, those things corrupt us so often. And I think one of the most dangerous things that happens to our faith is where we allow the corruption of the flesh, the enemy, and the world to enter into our faith and we try to reinterpret the gospel of, Je- of King Jesus through the lens of those things which you know, means we begin to use the Bible to justify our behaviors. We use the Bible as a weapon against other people to indict them for why they're not doing this and that and the other thing wrong. And we have, this, we have impure hearts because we have subtly allowed those influences to seep in and to use the good things of our faith 
for evil. We have become corrupted. But there are people in this world who are pure of heart, who have, they just understand what God is really like, and they make decisions out of that place. They treat other people out of that place. And we need more of those people in this world. This is why we pray so often, you know, purify our hearts, the seed of desire, purify us because we have been corrupted. Number three, the peacemakers work for the shalom of all people under God's rule. Initially, I had the word togetherness in there for shalom because it's kind of part of what it means. And I was like, no, let's actually use the Hebrew word. It's an amazing word, shalom. Uh, We translate it as peace, Um, But a lot of times we think of peace being the absence of conflict, right? How many of you are kind of, you're you're kind of conflict-averse people? That that would be me for sure. Like, as long as there's no conflict, then somehow there's peace. We're just not going to deal with the thing. Um, But that's not what shalom means. Shalom means kind of togetherness. There's There's a unity element to it. It means wholeness that the things that have been shattered and broken apart have been mended. So shalom is very much tied in with this idea of justice. And I think there are peacekeepers in the world. When we're peacekeepers, we just try to maintain the status quo so we can avoid conflict. And it, sometimes it feels like that's the kingdom. And I think one of the problems that we have in our decision-making as Christians, we go, well, I just had a real sense of peace about that. I just had a sense of peace. And what we're saying is, I, it, to make that decision makes me feel a certain way, which is a very, very dangerous place to be. And we're, our culture is so guided by emotivism, which is like, there was like, you know, kind of intellectualism, then there was the romantic era, and then emotivism's after that. I do what I do in order, like, because I feel a certain way, and I justify my decisions based on how I feel. Um, and that has very little to do with the kingdom of heaven, unfortunately. Peace is not something that we feel. Peace is a reality that we live in. And peace is the way we walk the path. And the peacemakers among us understand that peace isn't just the destination, it's the way we walk the journey. And so often to be peacemakers means that we are stirring up a heck of a lot of conflict. And it means that we're going to incur a whole lot of wrath from the flesh and the enemy and the world that do not want us to be peaceable people. But I have said before, I think that the call to be peaceable people is at the center of our kingdom ethics. It's the central tenet by which we make decisions because we're living out the peaceable kingdom of Christ. And that brings us to the fourth and the final beatitude. Those who are persecuted because of righteousness stay true to live the Jesus way even in the face of overwhelming resistance. Now, what am I not talking about? Let's get that one out of the... You are not persecuted when you are acting like a jerk in the name of Jesus. Okay? Let's just get that one off the table real quick. When you go out into the world and you try to stir things up in order to to tell yourself that you've been persecuted, no, 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 no. That has very little to do with the kingdom because we look at these other qualities of the people that are blessed in the Beatitudes and we go, oh, it's not about us going out and like inserting ourselves into place. I mean, we're seeing this with these freaking masks over this past year, right? Christians going out and inserting themselves into places. Like, to, oh my gosh, I'm being persecuted because I have to wear this. Are you kidding me? We're so comfortable 
And we're so privileged that we think this is an act of persecution. Cool. Why don't you uh, read some church history? Why don't you read about like uh, the, the early church where they're being drawn and quartered and burned alive and buried alive and they're being eaten by lions? That's persecution because of righteousness. Because they want to, they are so committed to living a peaceable life that they cannot imagine living any other way, even when it gets them killed. But it's about being a peaceable person. It's about laying claim to the truth. The world is already a peaceful place. The world just doesn't realize it yet. See, that's what it means to live under the rule of the king. Is we're the people to say this new world is breaking forth in the midst of the other one. And we're not saying, how do I make the world a more peaceful place? We're saying it already is, just nobody realizes that yet. So I'm going to live in such a way that it confronts the violence of the world that they have to contend with that. And either they're going to come over to our side or they're going to kill me. That is what we're talking about here. When we are so single-minded in living out the kingdom, my, my favorite verse in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, it says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men lay hold of it. And I think it's talking, it's really interesting the way that it gets translated. Is, it, is, is the kingdom of heaven advancing violently or suffering violence? And I think it's saying kingdom violence is violence against violence, which is the way of love. And that, that radical kingdom way sub, like upends everything, stirs things up within the status quo of the world to contend against the kingdom versus the empire. And we have to be committed to living out the kingdom way. So we actually become those violent people that are sinking our teeth into the kingdom and going wherever it takes us. But we live out of that commitment to staying true, to live the way that Jesus has called us to live, especially when it gets hard. Again, that's where like our utilitarian ethics come in. Like I'll do the Jesus thing, but un until it's really inconvenient for me and it's really hard. And then I'll just turn to the ways of the world in order to solve problems. And I'll just begin to use violence there. But we're called to be so committed to the way of Jesus that if we are persecuted, it becomes this testimony that we're actually doing it the right way. So these are the kinds of people that God has blessed because he's making a covenant with these kinds of people. Because they're lacking something that gives them an opportunity to trust in God, or they possess something of the heart of God uh, that radiates out into the world to preach the good news through word and through deed. But not only are the Beatitudes the people who are blessed, they are the people through whom God will advance his kingdom. So these are the kinds of people that God uses to reveal the kingdom. I feel like I haven't given you an N.T. Wright quote in like three weeks or something, and I'm sorry for that. But he said in his wonderful book, Simply Jesus, he said, the work of the kingdom is summed up pretty well in those Beatitudes. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemakers, and so on. So, the Beatitudes aren't just about an identity. You're blessed because you can receive this identity from God. It's also a vocation. God has given us a job to do, and that's evidence of when we are blessed. I think what's so amazing about the Beatitudes is Jesus actually demonstrates every one of these attributes, these qualities in perfection. That Jesus was 
poor in spirit. He understood his limits. He learned how to, to trust God and his daily need for him. Um, even when he, Jesus says, like, I only do the things that I see my father doing. He, he teaches us this reliance on God. Jesus mourns. You know, the prophets called him a man of sorrows, well acquainted with suffering. Jesus wept over the pain and the injustice in the world. Jesus was meek. Even when the crowds came rushing and trying to establish him on the king and put a sword in his hand, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he walked away time and again from opportunities to actually seize power, to trust that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And he was so single-minded in his pursuit of those kingdom ways. Jesus was merciful. He was always challenging the legalism of his fellow Jews and saying, no, 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 you're missing the point. Jesus was pure at heart. Everything he did was for the kingdom. And he stood up against the flesh and the enemy in the world. Jesus was a peacemaker. And we see that because he would stir up conflict when he needed to in order to rupture all of our assumptions to get us to the truth of togetherness with God. And of course, Jesus was persecuted because of his righteousness. And there was overwhelming resistance. So right here in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, He's, Jesus is not giving us five points to a happier marriage. He's not telling you, if you do these things, then maybe God will bless you. Like if you just live a healthier, happier life, or you follow my program, or you buy my DVDs, or you, you go to my weekend workshop, and it's only $29.95 and three easy installments. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He's saying, no, 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 you are blessed when you're like this, and you've got a job to do. And that's where he continues on and begins to speak in these analogies of salt and light. And again, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's not something you're working towards. You're already this. So as salt, you are to preserve the goodness of God in the world. What is salt? Salt was a preservative. This is kind of before um, the advent of refrigerators and, and all of that stuff, that you would, you would preserve your food using salt. It would kind of keep the moisture at bay, so it would keep fresh and, and good for you. And as light, you're to reveal what is truest about the world through your steadfast presence. The light, is, I mean, we often, this is one of the major analogies we use for Jesus and the kingdom, is the light that shines, that reveals what was hidden in the darkness, that we did not know was actually there, but now we do because of the light on the world. Um, and it's not just the good things. It shows all the bad things and the ugly things, too. That's just what light does. But once the light shines, then we can actually do something with what is being revealed. And what Jesus is saying to these first disciples and the way he's challenging us today is to say, no, you are salt. You are to go out into the world and you're to preserve the goodness of God that you see. I think so, so much of the work of being a Christian is to name the goodness of God that we see in the world. That's our, that's, I think that's actually what evangelism is by and large, is we go out into the world because we know what is good and we say, yes, that is good and guess what? That goodness has a face. That goodness has a name. And its name is Jesus. And we are called to keep the world fresh and alive to understanding the goodness of the God who is king. And as light, we go out to reveal what is hidden in dark places. To reveal what is actually going on. To reveal these 
corrupt philosophies of the world to reveal brokenness and to reveal the goodness of God in the midst of all of it. And how does salt lose its saltiness? It gets too mixed in with the things of the world. How does light get extinguished? It gets hidden because of shame, because we're worried about how we might look if we were to be a true light. I think part of growing up and being a mature Christian is laying claim to our vocation, our job that we have to do, to get off the bench, to believe that we've, we already have enough within us to do the thing that God's calling us to do. It's not about oh, I just the one more workshop and then I'll be ready. It's not one more sermon series and then I'm gonna be ready to go and do the job God's given me to do. No, we go out into the world and we do these things by faith, even though it doesn't, we don't feel equipped, we don't feel like we're ready. We go out and we begin to do and through doing, we begin to understand what God is really like, what the heart of the King really is. And it gives us new confidence uh, to receive that divine vocation. So what I wanna do is we're gonna, we're gonna enter into a time of prayer and I've kind of uh, written a prayer that's going to take us through four kind of elements um, of this passage, this very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, about being blessed because of our lack, being blessed because of what we possess, um, being salt and being light. And I'm going to create space for you to have some dialogue with God, to believe God is here and he's present and he's with you. And he is so attentive. He's like, God is like on the edge of his seat. Like, Katie, let's do it. What do you got? Talk to me, you know? Like, that's how God is. We don't, maybe we don't really feel like we're worthy of his presence. But by faith, we receive that. And so I'm gonna give you space to interact with the Father, to talk to God, to believe the spirit of Jesus is here waiting and attentive and on the edge of his seat to see what you wanna say. And so I'm going to pray, and there's going to be a little prompt for you just to dialogue uh, with Jesus within your own heart. So let us pray. Humble King, you tell us we are blessed when we are poor in spirit, when we mourn, when we are meek, when we hunger and thirst for your righteousness because we are in a place to receive your presence. Teach us humility. May we ever learn to trust in you. So right now, just consider who demonstrates these kingdom qualities in your life and spend some time thanking God for their witness to you. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.